Hi, this is Against Everyone with Connor Habib, a podcast featuring my conversations with countercultural figures and presenting complex philosophical, spiritual, and political ideas in an engaging and accessible way. Well, friends, it probably won't surprise you that fairies are everywhere in Ireland. And by everywhere, I mean in artistic representation, of course, and I also mean in little doors um, that people affix to trees and in tourist magnet buildings and institutions like the Dublin Leprechaun Museum. I mean that fairies are everywhere in Ireland in casual conversation and in belief, like when I was walking through the woods with my friend and I almost stepped uh, in a mushroom ring um, and she said, don't, don't watch out for that, you know, <laughs> don't step in there. Or when someone was doing work in my backyard and they uh, did some protective ritual to ward off the fairies because they were digging up part of a tree. Um, Fairies are everywhere here. Um, they're in the National Folklore Collection, um, where Irish people for decades have had their stories taken down and recorded, um, both in handwriting, um, in audio recordings, and these interviews that make up the National Folklore Collection continue, and there's lots of fairy lore in there. Uh Fairies are everywhere in Ireland, also in the political and economic realm. Um, when a TD, or a TD is basically a member of Irish government, I'm not going to go into <laughs> the specifics of that here, but when a TD of Irish government blamed a bad road in his county on fairies, um, you know, the Irish press laughed at it, but I'm sure a lot of people took that on board and just thought, huh, yep, probably. Um, and the reason why I know that they probably did was because there was another road project that was completely rerouted, um, even though it was part of a millions of euro road plan to avoid a ferry tree. Um, and that ferry tree still stands as far as I know. <laughs> they diverted the entire road um, to not, well, they kept it in the median, I guess, but that ferry tree is still there. Um, and recently there was uh, the erecting of a statue of a dangerous fairy, a puka, um, in an Irish town. And that was protested for lots of different reasons. Some of them might seem magical and some of them might just seem aesthetic. Um, there's more on all of that in the show notes, by the way. Um, but fairies are also everywhere in I don't know, the physical presence in Ireland. I remember going out to County Clare and walking out at night and you could just see these lights all over the field. And I was with someone and I said, do you see those? And she said, yes, I see them. <laughs> it was very strange. You know, whether or not you accept that those were fairies or I or my friend accepted those were fairies, it's hard to not think of fairies when you see lights strewn across a field that don't have any sort of discernible origin in a country on um, an island where there is a rich history of fairy lore. It's one of the first things that comes to mind. And it may be because fairies are such a part of life here that it's not <laughs> so easy to find people to talk with about fairies in a direct way on a podcast. I mean, I could find people that were just talking about fairies in folklore, in history, but what about the actual sort of presence of them here in people's psyche, in people's practices, and actually in people's lives? So 
Luckily, (laughs) there's the work of anthropologist Dennis Gaffin, who wrote Running with the Fairies Towards a Transpersonal Anthropology of Religion to Turn to. Dennis is also the author of a book on the Faroe Islands, as well as a novel, The Divinity Inquiry, which is about theosophy and includes some great passages on fairies in Ireland as well. I'm so fortunate to have been able to get Dennis on the show for this conversation, which is part of uh, a series of episodes that um, is all about Irish magic and occultism and so forth. Um, this series may or may not be interrupted by other episodes, but I'm going to keep coming back to this topic because it's really interesting to me. Um Anyway, without further ado, well, wait, there is a little bit of a further ado. I'm going to ask you to support the show on Patreon, as I do at the top of every episode, because your support is what keeps this show going. I don't have uh, sponsors, advertisers. It's just people who listen to the show. So if you go to patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib and contribute, you are contributing to the lifeblood and the existence of this show. And you're basically saying, hey, I like what you do. Um, Keep doing it. Because uh, your money, um, your pledge, your interest, your support, your reviews, your subscriptions, your ratings, your uh, talking about it with other people, posting about it on social media, that's all that keeps the show going. It's just us in this together. I mean, I do have the mediator of Patreon, (laughs) but aside from that, it's really just I'm making the show listeners like it listeners support it you're a listener so do that all right patreon.com forward slash connor habib and now really without further ado here's my episode on irish fairies and irish fairy folk with anthropologist and writer dennis gaffin here we go Hey everybody, it's Against Everyone with Connor Habib. Hello, Dennis Gaffin. It's nice to be talking with you. Hi, nice to see you. Um, okay, well, listen, let's just jump right in. Um, I <laughs> So, you know, I'm doing this series on uh, spirituality, occultism, magic, that sort of thing in Ireland. And wh- one of the things that was really interesting to me as I was sort of figuring out who I wanted to have on was that there's, it was actually a little difficult for me to find the right kinds of people (laughs) to have on the show. And what do Uh I mean by that? Like, you know, there is a, there's obviously Catholicism and there's obviously a kind of resurgence, a sort of neo-paganism. But I was trying to find people that were doing things that were, uh, really Ireland specific and that were sort of tied in and tangled into Ireland that, I I mean, not to say that Catholicism and and the neo-paganism aren't, but that were tied in in a way that I could sort of feel confident and comfortable calling it sort of Irish spirituality. And it was, it was actually really kind of difficult to, to find. Um, And I also found that, you know, mirrored the fact that it was hard to find books Um, that were scholarly, um, academic, anthropological books about um, 
about fairies, fairy folk, fairy traditions in Ireland. Um, I mean, there are, there are some more now since you've published Running with the Fairies. But it was, it was interesting to me that this topic is kind of scarce, but also in sort of academic books, but also that it was sort of hard for me to find people. And I, I have an, an idea of why that, I think there's a sort of transition period happening here that's really shaking up religion and spirituality, but, and, and this sort of tech, uh, <laughs> this tech presence here. But I wanted to sort of talk about that first, because it is something that you go over quite a bit in Running with the Fairies, um, just the lack of material and how, you know, you decided to just take this up and go with it. So maybe we can start there. Um, the difficulty for <laughs> for you years ago, and then the difficulty for me in just putting together a podcast series on this very topic. Uh, sure. Um let me start by saying that when I uh, wrote the first draft of the book, Running with the Fairies, um, I submitted it to academic uh, presses, university presses, and, and they rejected it. And then I submitted it to trade publication presses, and they rejected it. Each of the kinds of presses said, and on one hand, if it was an academic press, that it wasn't academic enough. And the trade presses said uh, that it was too academic. So there's this space, uh, particularly because of the topic, of course, um, that kind of reflects the uh, even the existence of what's called the fairy faith in Ireland. That is, it, it's something which is not institutionalized and not well recognized, primarily because it's a, a mystical uh approach to spirituality, which is primarily an individual one. So you don't find much about it. And then secondly, um, because the institutions, uh, particularly religious institutions, look down upon historically fairies or fairy faith, um, you don't find um, people um, uh, interested in the topic because it's kind of squashed in a way. So, of course, in Ireland, it's a lot more common than you find in other parts of the world. But nonetheless, um, Running with the Fairies was really the first scholarly work on fairies that was in, in, you know, published by an academic press since the original uh, Evans Wentz's uh, study in, uh, published in 1911 about uh, the fairy faith in Celtic countries. And he was a PhD anthropologist, but he never received hardly any renown as a consequence of that book. He, yeah. he became famous for his work uh, on, in Tibet and, uh, and on, if you will, on fairies in Tibet, which were legitimate items of uh, academic uh, scholarship, but not in the West. The West sort of wa- didn't want to look at its own mystical uh, approaches. Yeah, it, well, that's interesting too because the that that Walter Evans Wentz book was taken up by um, a lot of UFO researchers. Are people who mm-hmm. quote it the most because they're uh, t- uh, like Jacques Vallée and some other people because they're sort of showing the overlap between UFO sightings and and fairy beliefs, and it's sort of a favorite. It seems like go to for that kind of sourcing, but it not picked up. So picked up by this 
crowd of people that are also not really taken seriously in academia and are just sort of now getting some kind of attention um, by Diana Pasolka and some other people. But yeah, it's found its own pathway, but not, you know, even though it's a serious academic work, but not not in academia at all. Right. Yeah. Um, But I think, you know, do you think that some of this has to do with there's you know, it's weirdly, you know, here the the permeation of the presence of fairies in people's lives. I mean, it's just everywhere. I mean, so I live in Dublin, and I wouldn't say that people are constantly talking about fairies or saying they see them or whatever. But for instance, I, I was walking through the woods in Glendalough here um, with a friend who is supposedly total, you know, atheist, and I walked by a circle of mushrooms, and she said, "Watch out." you know, very like Uh, frantically, you know, uh, and, um, and so I think that there's that, you know, that idea that it, it's sort of woven through people's everyday lives in a way that it becomes um, in some ways harder to notice as something that could be studied. Um, I mean, yeah. So I, I, go ahead. Yeah, please. Yeah. I found it, um, Amusing and interesting that in parts of Ireland, as you were saying, you could go into a pub with a, a, a bunch of uh, guys uh, drinking their Guinness and the, I, the subject of fairies would come up and it wasn't laughed about in the sense that it was ridiculous, that it was something that was, as you were just saying, really part of the culture or people's belief systems in the States and, and most other parts of the world. But I should really just stick to the states and Canada, that does not happen. <laughs> you don't go into a bar and have five guys or whatever drinking beer uh, and taking the notion of fairies seriously at all, you know? Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, it, it's it's really in there. And that's why I think uh, Ireland is a particularly uh, fairyish place in that respect. Yeah, it was interesting too, though, because like when it does show itself in popular culture, people will laugh at it. So in other words, when it becomes something that's pronounced, I mean, there was the 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 politician here, I'm sure you've probably heard of this. I think this happened after you had done most of your research and written this book, but the politician here who said, you know, you couldn't, they couldn't fix the road down in Kerry because like the fairies right. would just come in and everybody kind of laughed at him. And the guy is, I mean, he's got his issues as a politician. So maybe they were just <laughs> laughing at him because he was just being disingenuous, but but what I mean, but who who knows really? And um, but it's interesting then that it's woven in. But then if it sort of pokes its head out into like popular discourse, it gets kind of like laughed down again, or at least in yeah. in that instance it did. Or you know the whole thing about the road, you know the the NR the NRA, which is not the same as the NRA in in the US, but yeah, the NRA yeah. building the road and having to sort of reroute this entire million you know, uh-huh. Euro project around or multi-million Euro project around like this fairy, um, these, this fairy tree, this gathering place. So, and that became a sort of news of the weird item too. So it's interesting that if it kind of makes itself too explicit, like maybe in a pub, it's fine, but if it makes itself too explicit, then somehow also it becomes I don't know, unacceptable, or maybe people are sort of nervously laughing as if they've been exposed or something like that. I don't know. Well, certainly increasingly in modern times, and I would imagine 
increasingly so in Dublin, which is becoming a much more cosmopolitan city of the world. Um, I think uh, the notion of uh, empirical science is uh, uh, um, increasingly more powerful than what some people call uh, these, you know, folk beliefs. Um, mm -hmm. But another aspect of it, though, uh, which uh, is that I learned and Kay and others that I have known uh, have learned that it's OK for people to laugh about it mm. and that um, in a sense, the fairy world, whatever that might mean, has co-opted. Uh, although from the human perspective, it might not make sense, but they've sort of co-opted the notion that um, fairies are amusing. In other words, they can, we can laugh about how other people laugh about it and still be serious about it. In other words, that world is, if you will, amusingly serious or seriously amusing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting that the humor, I mean, that's also just kind of an Irish trait, I would say, right. you know, you come right. here and everything can be laughed at and everything can also be taken completely seriously at the same time, which I find I've been trying to unpack and figure out that, that for myself too. And now I've talked to people, but yeah. So, I mean, I think then it's like when you, the, the participants in your research, I mean, the, the interesting thing is from, from an outside perspective, someone coming to that for the first time is that, well, a lot of them just sort of talked about how they didn't see fairies, but they sort of felt the presence of them, or they right. just sort of knew that they were there. And in fact, you have in your novel, The Divinity Inquiry, you have a character who also sort of gives the kind of rundown of that fairy, <laughs> that fairy faith um, right. as well. And I think, uh, but I think then there's that tension between that and the people that just say that they see them. I mean, and, and, and when they see them here that they're just, they look like people, which is also interesting. Maybe we can get to that a little bit later. Uh -huh. um, sure. But, but I think, you know, first of all, someone would say, oh, well, you just sense them. They're not really there or whatever. <laughs> you know, this, this idea that they can't be seen and you do go to lengths to express Yes, but it's not as simple as that. It's not as simple as someone just imagining things and you ask them, you know, what is it? And how do you know that this isn't imagined or whatever? But I do think that there's like, um, there's a resistance, you know, to people from the outside looking in to sort of take that up, even again, as they might feel it in their own lives somehow, even as they yeah. might feel the presence of these beings in their own lives. And what do you... Like, what do you make of that resistance or that sort of like obfuscating like presence? Is it just learned or is it something, or would you say it's something else that's happening there? Uh, I think it's probably a discomfort with uh, the mystical, right? Mm -hmm. and I think the issue in, in part is that um, fairies for, uh, for most people's perspectives um, are of the imagination of the human being, okay? Mm -hmm. But fairy people and people who have experience with fairies to one degree or another know that fairies exist independently of an individual's human mind. In other words, humans 
imagine fairies in the Jungian sense with a, of imagination with a capital I in which they're connecting with something that exists exterior to the human being mm. rather than only fantasizing or imagining something that's there. So I think people are on the border or unsure, including me perhaps, uh, of, of the uh, forays into the mystical versus the uh, much more well-accepted scientific world uh, in the sense of sort of hard empirical science. Well, uh, yeah, so you say, just to pick that up a little bit, so you say including yourself, but it seems like, especially in this book, you have these experiences that are, you know, that are showing you like, well, yes, but (laughs) (laughs) But there there actually is something going on. you know, there's a great, it's, you quote this Edith Turner essay a bit um, about her encounter with the spirit being. And there's this really, just for people listening, this really fantastic book called Being Changed, which is about anthropologists having these kind of undeniable spiritual experiences where they're shocked into understanding that there is, you know, a, a, a realm that doesn't just relate itself to the kind of materiality and sensual, you know, experiences that we're used to. Uh, I think it is so fascinating, though, that even having had that experience, and I mean, obviously, it's been a long time since you've written the book, so I don't know how wh- what the <laughs> what's happened since then for you. But it is interesting to me that you've had and identified that, but you're still feeling this kind of wavering, or at least it sounded like you just expressed this kind of wavering on the fence relationship. Oh, to it. Only wavering in the sense that I've been as you just mentioned, a little distant in terms of time and the geography from Ireland uh, in the last 10 years. Hmm. So the presence literally of fairies around Ireland um, is provides an environment in which you can connect. And of course, people's beliefs are in great part a function of their exposure to other beliefs or to other uh, experiences. So I still have the same sensibility, but when I referred to it being wavering earlier, by that I meant to say that it's not as strong as it used to be. It's not as strong as it used to be. I still believe, okay, Mm -hmm. and I still experience, and I think I still have knowledge of that world, but because I'm living in a different place and also have different focuses now on some other subject matters, although generally spiritual, it, it has it takes up less of my mind or imagination, if you will. Look, I mean, I came to Ireland for the first time when I was 15 and, um, you know, and I knew I wanted to live here then. And so I finally moved, you know, after I turned 40 here, but I knew then, as I know now that this, that the presence of something magical or this sort of elemental presence and kingdom is it's quite palpable and you can't, and though you remember it when you leave, it is not replicable anywhere else that I've ever been. I mean, there's been other weird spiritual experiences in other places. And I wonder sometimes, I think, you know, let me see if I can string this all together. You know, the, the fact that um, people are experiencing in the sort of imaginal way the presence of these beings 
and that the Irish imagination has kept the presence of these beings alive in part in resistance to colonialism and a certain presence of, you know, other, you know, religious and spiritual traditions that might try to sort of block it out. You know, it's, it's almost become a kind of uh, like a corner of the psyche has been made where these beings can live, where otherwise, you know, like in, in defense of the identity of the Island itself. And so in a way, the, you know, um, no matter how much land is sort of taken up or, 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 or ground up or however much Ireland has this kind of weird longing to be in the international conversation in some ways, there still is reserved this place where these fairy beings can live. And if we take the imagination as a dimension, then actually there is a residence there where they can, you know, sort of thrive. Well, it's right. interesting what happens to that place of residence when you leave the sort of land where it's overlaid, where like the, the actual landscape matches the psychic space and then uh-huh. you go somewhere else. That's so, uh, and I'm wondering what that shock has been like for you or if it's, or if it's uh or if it's shock at all, maybe that's my word, but like, um, you know, if you feel a kind of, if you hear sort of distant, voices or or if you can sort of tap into it or evoke it again sort of on your own there i can yeah i i i i i say um i can invoke it when i have the inkling to invoke it mm. um i must say it's it's not so common um i think because the environment uh both the social and physical uh, are not conducive to that or as it were sometimes i forget that uh, little layer of the cosmos or something like that. Um, but I can invoke it if I concentrate on it. Um, yeah, maybe just to sort of bring that back then to, again, I'm talking in terms of a kind of psychic space, which I, I mean, anybody that listens to the show knows that I take that seriously. There's this great, this great and funny comment by Rudolf Steiner where he says something like, you know, um, look, idea, like, chairs and ideas of chairs are as real as chairs. And maybe if you came into this lecture hall and I told you all to sit on the idea of a chair, you'd be angry with me, but nevertheless, it is true that the ideas of chairs are as real as chairs. And I, and I think, you know, once we sort of, we just have to sort of parse out how it's real and actually that maybe the physical chair is the kind of illusory commitment that we have, um, not the idea of it. But then there is this physical manifestation of these beings. Like I was in the, I was in near the Burren um, in County Clare here. And I just went out one night and it was the most striking and bizarre thing. There were just lights all across a field. I mean, lights, wow. little tiny lights. And I thought, and I was with somebody and I was like, I just need to check. Do you see those? And she said, yes. And then we kind of got close to them. We were like, yeah, those are there. I mean, it was absolutely, you know, strange. And this is, you know, anybody that wants to sort of just go out in certain parts of Ireland at night, you might, you might not, but you might see something, you know, you might encounter something and it becomes sort of undeniably bizarre. And, um, but there is a whole, 
you know, group of people that will, they'll actually still just see things. There's uh, someone I know, he, he is, I mean, I don't want to talk like identify him, but he, you know, lives in Cary and he, you know, works on the land and he just talks about leprechauns. Okay. Here they are. This is what they do. He sees them, you know, and, and he just talks about what pisses them off and what won't. And, um, you know, it's so, it's so interesting to me that it doesn't just take place in this realm where we do have this kind of slippage between the psychic and the physical that sometimes it's just right in front of you. And I don't know one, why some people experience that and why others don't Two, why it happens as an accident um, for some people. And some people just get it all the time and they can go searching for it and find it. And three, you know, like why the difference between those two um, so often, you know? Um, well, I think there has to be a, an emotional receptivity. In other words, people who have very um, uh, solid or rigid uh, belief systems um, uh, are less open to diversity of ways of thinking or diversity of ways of experiencing and and as you've probably seen in other contexts um often the uh spiritually minded people who as it were discover other realms of reality have had experiences prior to that time that were disturbing of their worldviews Mm -hmm. often uh divorces uh tragedies moving from one place to another. So I think it takes a little bit of emotional and and therefore cognitive receptivity to even put oneself in the place where one can potentially accept um, uh, what is happening or what might be happening. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the other thing is that a belief itself, I think, is a a really interesting and complex phenomenon because um, as others uh, have stated, and as I've mentioned in the book, um, we really only find ourselves believing in something or having a, a mystic experience. We don't decide to. We might be exposed to, and this is what happened to me, I was exposed to a world of people uh, and ways of thinking that I had never had before, but I didn't decide to believe in fairies. It wasn't like, oh, I think that would be a good belief for me. Okay, it's just that it happened as a consequence of my exposure. Okay, uh, it wasn't an accident. But of course, you raise an interesting point because for some people, it is an accident. I interviewed people uh, and hung out with some people in Ireland who did not believe in fairies. And this is, I think, what you're saying in part and thought it was a ridiculous worldview. But then, saw a leprechaun by the side of a river one day and were blown away by the notion that they they actually saw a leprechaun when for the previous 30 or 50 years of their lives, they thought the notion of leprechauns was ridiculous. (laughs) Yeah, well, so gosh, there's so much there. I mean, one, I want to talk about that, you know, how you're saying that there's a, a kind of a disruption or a rupture in people's lives that it somehow creates an aperture for these beings to appear, which is fascinating. And that the paranormal, or maybe that's not the right word for it, but the, 
the presence of fairies and other beings is kind of a healing act for the, or it's something that fills in the wounded space in that person, which, you know, to take that seriously, that's really profound. I mean, there's lots of accounts of people whose depression has been healed from seeing, you know, someone that they loved who has died. And so there's almost this proximity to the spiritual world is itself a healing act, um, which also has implications in Christianity and people just being, you know, having touching Christ's garment or, and that kind of stuff. But then I think also, um, so, so that's one thing. And then the other thing is <laughs> to pick up on your other point is like, you know, when you said no, you don't decide it, it's true that you don't decide, but then there's this kind of, um, there is a decision. I was really interesting to think of that. Like there's an aspect of this human phenomena that you don't decide and you kind of find yourself responding to, but there is a decision to not compartmentalize sometimes. So I'm thinking of my friend who is <laughs> just a very funny person, you know, you work for clothing companies kind of has this sort of petty materialistic sense of humor. I love him, but he, you know, was driving in the car, uh, saw UFO or actually this, this is a better example. He had another experience. He was driving in a car with his friend and they drove through a woman, like a ghostly woman. And they stopped the car and they both looked at each other and they're like, what, what, you know, this is in the U S. And then I was like, well, doesn't that sort of change the way you view the world? He's like, Oh no, it's just some weird thing. You know, like it didn't, it didn't have any sort of rearranging principle for him. It didn't shock him. So in some ways it's also that there's the, the sort of shaking up happens for some and not for others. Um, And that's really, so on the one hand, you could just be someone that didn't see anything or experience anything on the other, you could see it and, and just kind of compartmentalize it immediately. And then another, there's a kind of receptivity that's, you know, uh, that you could maybe decide to pursue, like you could become a paranormal investigator or you could be sort of haunted by this one event, or you could just find yourself accepting more and more and letting more and more in. Yeah. I'm not sure there's an answer to that. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that we can delineate who is more receptive than others or who allows their experience to significantly alter their worldview or their belief system. And this perhaps is in itself an example of that, if you know uh-huh. what I mean. Yeah, yeah. No, it's just it's funny for people listening. I just saw just saw Dennis stop sort of mid-statement and kind of oh, that was it. That's all. <laughs> so yeah, I mean it's just I mean, I think yeah, I I think it's so strange because again, with the permeation of this sort of fairy presence of almost everybody's lives in Ireland, you know, people yeah. telling me. Uh, like like an anthropologist I know here, she was, said she was just terrified of banshees when she was a kid, you know? She was so afraid she was going to hear one. Like she would lie awake and just be terrified that she would hear the scream or she'd hear the sound of the horse that the banshee was uh-huh. riding or whatever, you know? And um, just knowing that that's here and, and, and in here, but like still, how is it 
how do people sort of get away with living one way or the other um, where they sort of allow it to transform them, you know, in, in, in a big way or not. I mean, it's just such a fascinating question. Well, one, one, one could, I suggest that maybe it's not up to the individual human alone. Mm -hmm. That is to say Mm -hmm. that if, if there are indeed uh, humanoids or fairies or other beings out there that affect us, then maybe it's not our individual decision alone that allows us to expand our worldview, but that it's a function of the strength of, or the intentionality or the um, persistence of those other beings. Yeah, that's great. I love that because, you know, a lot of, well, some of the people in running with the fairies are people that um, experience themselves as being reincarnated fairies or sort of reborn fairies. So even like, so the it, it's also <laughs> that some of the people that are you know having these experiences already had them in previous <laughs> incarnations as fairies right. versus you know maybe people who are just sort of coming to consciousness about these presences although i do i mean that was also interesting to me in the sense that i've never met that i know of somebody that has that view of themselves as having been once reincarnated from the fairy realm yeah yeah that's a yeah of course of course that borrows a little bit from eastern thinking although there are in in western religions like uh, christianity and and uh, judaism there are mystics within them who do believe in reincarnation but as we know they're not really uh up front in mainstream judeo-christian or even islamic uh, uh, uh programs um yeah, well, um, I, I want to read to you here a little bit from a, a letter that I got a number of years ago after I published the book that maybe is somewhat relevant to this question. And it, it's a, you know, it, it, it it's a letter saying nice things about the book, but it's more I'm reading it more because it's about this individual person's experience. And I'm I'm skipping right into it. And this is written by an American woman who went to visit a friend in Ireland and then returned to the States. Okay. And, and, and um, she writes, um, Colston told me about your book and said it would be one of the most important books that I would ever read. I ordered it as soon as I returned home. It is difficult for me to express the impact your book has had on my life. The simplest way to put it is to say that all of my life, I have felt like the ugly duckling. I didn't feel like I fit in with the crowd and found it depleting to be part of the rat race. My life makes so much sense now. I thought I was flawed, but now I know I am fairy. I am not an ugly ugly duckling. I am a beautiful swan. Yeah. So, so, I mean, that was, that made me feel very good, of course. Um, but one of the themes in, in the book and in my experience, of course, was what you were just referring to before, that uh, some fairy people, and by that term, I mean specifically people who know that they are reincarnated fairies having previously lived in the fairy realm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I differentiate that from fairy folk who are simply people who believe in and experience fairies, but they don't uh, uh, go into reincarnation as part of the explanation for it. Um, 
Uh, but uh, as Kay and others have put, there are many people who later realize that they may have been or were reincarnated from the fairy world. Uh, and, and while this person's letter that I just read is not about reincarnation, it's about later realization after exposure and explanation um, that somebody comes to realize much more about who they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's so, well, first of all, I really like, I love that letter. Um, uh, it does make me wonder if you feel that there's some sort of like, I mean, you write about this a little bit in the book, but not too much. But I wonder if it, it's making you think that there's this kind of affinity with uh, some sort of idea of Iris authenticity, you know, in the sense of like the same way that people write about you know, Native American spirituality and their relationship to it, you know, when they're not Native people. That's not to diminish the letter that you just read, but I'm just wondering if you see some crossover there because a lot of the, well, some of the participants in your book are not from Ireland. And, um, you know, and I, I have like kind of, it's not bad feelings about it, but it's complicated feelings, I should say. You know, there, there's a woman who I really... I love her book. She has a book called Summer with the Leprechauns named Tannis Hallowell. And it's a great book, but you kind of get this like, then like you sort of can get this kind of feeling like, oh, did you just go to Ireland like for the Blarney? Do you know what I mean? Like you can get that kind of like flavor out of it in a way that when you, you know, are, are in Ireland, it can feel a little sort of weird. Like, why are these people coming here to study like the mystical stuff, you know? Uh Um, But, you know, and that, but then she, this person has written you a letter saying, you know, this was really helpful. This was soothing. This was, you know, this actually made me feel like I had, you know, some footing in the world that I fit somewhere. So there's a, I don't know. I don't even know if you think about that question then of that, that sort of authenticity question, it, it comes up a little bit in the book, but not quite, you know. Well, I do sometimes make some statements about um, uh, that have to do with the authenticity. And, and that is a, um, how do I say that? that is a theme or uh, that I have in my life in terms of interest, as well as uh, going along with the notion of belief or experience, um, uh, uh, hopefully a self-critique about how authentic I am, mm-hmm. right? So when you raise the issue of authenticity, um, it, it doesn't have to be about others' authenticity. It could be about one's own authenticity, right? Mm-hmm. So um, in Ireland, as others have said, several others have said, some people uh, believe or know that geographically, or cosmologically, meaning with respect to the geography of Ireland being somewhere in the, in the layers of the cosmos, whether they're visible or not, that there's a vortex mm-hmm. or whatever word we want to use in Ireland where, and many other people have said this, where the veils between the worlds are much thinner than they are in other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. So that's an explanation for why in Ireland, that's one explanation anyway, for why in Ireland um, people get uh, upon visiting or upon being uh, raised there, they, they get this stuff 
as it were, or they feel the spiritual connection. And of course, the history of Celtic religion, I'll call it, incorporates uh, the notion that the spiritual world is intermixed with or very close to the everyday physical world. Mm. I mean, John, O'Don- John O'Donohue, who I'm sure you're familiar with um, quite a bit, who was a great white writer. And as you know, he unfortunately died a little early. Um, uh, he, he, he writes about this. You know, he writes about the Celtic uh, imagination. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, John O'Donohue is just fantastic. <laughs> um, I always say that, like, I'm glad he and both he and John Moriarty, like I'm sort of say like, I'm glad that I didn't find out about them until after they died, because it would have been so painful to know that they were out there and that they died, you know, before I got to speak with them. Um, But yeah, I mean, I, I like this framing because like the idea that it is somehow that there is some sort of uh, spiritual quality to this spatial temporal positioning of this island um, in the physical realm that makes these presences more apparent because obviously, you know, the fairies or the elemental beings are spoken about by all different people in all different cultures, which you go to great lengths to explain um, or, or, or detail. And even I looked at this, uh, I looked up the Irish theosophist after seeing a mention of it in your novel, um, because theosophy does have quite a presence here in Ireland. And, you know, it's in Ulysses, for example. I mean, it's in lots of Irish literature and lots of Irish writers were concerned with that. But the there's this passage in there by this guy, K.B. Lawrence, and it's, um, you know, it, it's about what the fairies are in one, one of the issues. And he, he says, uh, you know, or he writes that the fairies, you know, where, where are they? Well, you have to cultivate a certain kind of being to encounter them now, but then it's really interesting because he says, who makes the fairies? Where do they come from? You make them and they come from your busy brains, good fairies and nasty, ugly, spiteful ones. You give them life. You dress them too, although you do not mean to do so. And then he sort of goes through the kinds of qualities of fairies. And that is a picture that's presented in a different way by esoteric Christianity. And Daskalos, the the Cypriot healer, is a great example of this. He has this great description of the world as... uh, you know, it's all elemental beings. It's just all, it's all elemental beings, our bodies, our thoughts, whatever, even as you and I, Dennis, are speaking, we're creating in some sense, fairies, yeah. like we're creating these elemental beings as we speak. And, um, and so, you know, it's not a matter of, are the fairies here? Because actually they're everywhere and in everything and everything is sort of composed of their, activity or presence in a way but rather um what what location or what positioning allows us to sort of palpably encounter them and ireland Uh is in one sense an address for experience you know in a way one could say of the elemental world yeah so i like i like that you I like that you position that way. So, okay. So, but, but where are the fairies now? He asks. 
And one of the things that you bring up is that people will tell you again and again, well, there's a kind of, uh, 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 I don't know, like a pulling away of the presence of the fairies with the presence of electricity, with the presence of technology. And you mentioned some of the research you did in the Faroe Islands as well, with, I think I'm going to say this right, the Huldu folk. Yes, um, how yes, they, right. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> the, the Huldu folk also... Um, pulled away you know from yes from their presence because electricity started showing up so one what do you make of that and two i mean of course it it, instead of talking about in terms of modernity or the modern life we could actually just talk about the disappearance of the fairies not out of any sort of belief system but out of the presence of this kind of counterforce that crowds them out somehow right well um i think uh, electricity in this case uh, works uh, uh, and two on two levels, I think that electricity in the form that it's created by human beings and poles and outlets and so forth um, is disturbing to the electro or electromagnetic activity that fairies themselves operate on or with. So at a literal sort of um, physical level, although many people wouldn't list, wouldn't abide by that use of the word physical, but I think you know what I mean by the use of that electricity is real for everybody, I think, um, that literally the uh, vibrations didn't d- don't work well with the vibrations of fairies. Mm-hmm. But also I think it's primarily probably a, a metaphor for, as you were using the word uh, modernity and the noise literally, if you will, the noise and lights, literally, of modern times. Um, Because, of course, fairies and elemental beings are uh, generally nature spirits who live and hang out in more natural locations. You you don't go to Portobello Road, I don't think, to find a fairy. You you might go to, you know, the Burren or or to the west coast of uh, uh, Donegal or something like that, if you tried to find one, although that in itself might be something else we could talk about. <laughs> I'm, not, uh, I'm not so sure that that's something that one can do so easily anyways, go find one, you know? Yeah. Um, oh. um, Trying to I, find I, one is not maybe the best strategy for finding right, one. Right, right, right. Um, but um, another issue here um, is the difference, uh, and I talk about this uh, in the book, the difference between what some people have called the old fairy faith and the new fairy faith, because the older fairy faith, the one that's been around for a much longer time, is one which does not really consider fairies as divine beings, as beings that are associated, say, with God or with even other um, Christian or uh, or um, in, in the context of Ireland, uh, Christian uh, themes. Um, but the people like Kay and in the new fairy faith, fairies are only good and they're divine. That is, they're part of what could be considered a theosophical system, a divine system, rather than sort of, if you will, that for many people, I think it's a sort of an ancillary system or a body of thought or experience 
that they don't necessarily associate fairies as something related to God or Jesus Christ or, or you know, the traditional institutional uh, ideas of what religion is, right? Mm-hmm. So for the new fairy faith, one could say that for these mystics, one might call it religion, although certainly not in the institutionalized sense, whereas I think for the older um, approach, which saw fairies also as bad, um, it wasn't conceived of as generally um, part of, if you will, God's plan. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's really interesting because I think that that's actually something that's happening here now, is there's a kind of fumbling around for how to create a kind of transparency or illumination or kind of co-seeing of these different spiritual traditions of Christianity and fairy faith and all that sort of stuff, because, um, you know, there's a great story of, it's like a a companion of St. Patrick who went out into the woods and um, he was stopped by some being covered in hair or whatever. And he's like, Oh, I know. Uh And, uh, and the bean said, Hey, can you ask St. Patrick something for us? And he said, no, I cannot do that. I know what you are and I'm not going to do that. He said, no, no, just listen, go ask for us. And if you do, I'll give you a bit of the wisdom from our kingdom. And he says, okay, Uh we'll do it. And he said, all right, ask St. Patrick if we'll be redeemed on judgment day. Um, And Uh so, and then, so the guy goes back and he says to St. Patrick, you know, did you, you know, is this true? And St. Patrick says, well, no, they will not be redeemed, but now you might as well go dig your own grave because you're giving that being an answer that he doesn't want to hear. So go dig it and don't forget to put the lintel on the cross above the grave. And so the guy goes out in the forest and just digs his own grave and he puts the cross up top and the fairy being comes out and he says, uh, he says, okay, so what, what did you hear? And he said, well, you're not going to want to hear it doesn't go your way. No, you will not be redeemed. And then the fairy wants to jump into the dug grave and kill him, but he can't because the cross is sitting on top of it. And he says, oh, he's very frustrated. He says, well, nevertheless, I will give you a bit of our wisdom. I I want to kill you, but I can't. So I'll, I'll give you, and this is where the use of turf and peat comes from is that that bit of wisdom was given to that man. It's like fairy. And so, but even you can see in this story, which is, you know, an old enough story that um, there is an idea that they can't, that they, they fit somehow, you know, and there's an exchange of wisdom and, and but they can't be redeemed. Like they're not going to be redeemed. So also they were sort of fallen, but it seems like with some of this fairy folk stuff and some of the things that I think are happening in the current of spiritual currents of Ireland today is that maybe actually that's changed. Like maybe actually there is a chance to sort of redeem them and incorporate these traditions together and Uh, create a kind of a continuity or a feeling of how they all, you know, they all fit, you know? Right. That's what you're doing right now, actually. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's why I'm here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So yes. I mean, the the series right before this was on esoteric Christianity. So yes, I mean, (laughs) That's funny that you would just identify that and say that, but thank you. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I think it's what, you know, it's what a lot of uh, sort of these esoteric Christian, you know, um, traditions that take the elemental beings into consideration seriously 
are trying to do is create that continuity, you know? And I would say theosophy does that in a sense, although theosophy doesn't really include Christ in a way that is, uh, I mean, other than saying Krishnamurti was the, you know, reincarnation of the second coming of Christ, they uh-huh. kind of don't make it Christ centric exactly, you know, to bring those two traditions together, you know? Right. I think uh, many, uh, many theosophists though would say that uh, uh, Jesus Christ was one of the avatars was mm-hmm. one of the avatars of which there are perhaps uh, many um, but so his his place as it were uh, if I can use the word his as a pronoun for him mm-hmm. um, um, is not pushed aside but it's uh, placed in a larger context yeah and I think I think you know for me that the so the esoteric Christian streams whether it's anthroposophy or um, the white brotherhood, the Peter Dunov or the, the research truth, like they're all saying like, you know, yes, like Christ is one of these cosmic beings, but there's something a little bit more there that, oh, <laughs> that maybe sure. needs to be, for you sure. know, <laughs> um, but I, but I do think, you know, the, um, that difference also, I wonder if some of that comes from, or can be identified as breaking in that, kind of Bridget Cleary moment, because like, I think after that here, because around then it was like the Catholicism kind of tolerated these fairy views in some places Uh that it was kind of okay. You could have the priest and you'd have the fairy doctor and whatever. But after that moment where the guy set Bridget Cleary on fire, thinking she was a changeling, essentially his wife, you, you don't really see um, that kind of co-toleration. It's like you get one way or the other, and there becomes this kind of um, opposition at which the Catholic Church clearly, at least for a while, you know, won that that clash of things. And I'm wondering if there was sort of a parting of the ways at that moment, but maybe I'm emphasizing that a bit. Too. Well, I, I don't know. Um, uh, some people told me when I was uh, uh, in Ireland uh, that uh, although the church eschewed fairies, the church with a capital C, that priests at the local levels did not so much eschew them. Mm. Okay, that is that they either believed in fairies themselves or they didn't, you know, denigrate people who did, that they accepted fairies as real, at least for many of the people in their parishes. Uh, even if they didn't themselves. So there may be sort of this underlying, uh, maybe even hidden, at least from the, from above uh, in the institution, belief in fairies by local people, whether they're priests or not. Um, so there may be more commingling than um, we want to publicize or that some people would want to publicize. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Well, so (laughs) it's so interesting how many aspects of this topic get sort of attached to in some way, hiding the presence of fairies, whether it's, (laughs) whether it's what you just said, or like right down to the sort of academic, you know, like Uh (laughs) cordoning it off. So that was something that maybe like, maybe we can sort of talk about last year is that, I mean, I think the uh, this <laughs> like 
how should I say this? I mean, your book, it does tip over into reality claims in a way, right? Like you're not simply talking about culture, but you are, it is, there is ontological stuff in there and world building stuff. And I think that, um, you know, the joke I always make about anthropology is like, (laughs) someone will, like some anthropologists will recount a story, you know, um, I think this is one of my, Michael Tossig's books, this story, but where this, you know, so some man will be dying, uh, an indigenous person in the Americas will be dying on a beach and a wolf will come up and vomit foam on him. And then the wolf will say, now you're protected from smallpox and you can go out and you can help everybody else. And the anthropologist will look at that and say, what does this tell us about kinship structure? You know, and I'm like, uh-huh. what about the fucking talking wolf vomiting foam on the person? <laughs> like, what, <laughs> right, why is right. that not the thing that we talk about? And so you, you at least in some ways will t- turn your gaze to like, well, so what's, what's real here? Can we make reality claims? Can we talk about experience? But that's, that is not, is still not happening really. I mean, it's happening a little bit more, but it's not happening really. And so how do we even have the hope of kind of moving into talking or writing or examining fairies if the, the, that sort of side way of talking about things. Well, whether or not the phenomenon is real is not my concern as a researcher. You know, it's like, yes, it is. Of course it is, you know, and you're bold enough to take one step, you know, past that. But what do we, what do we do here with that? Well, the the academic or intellectual community, this, if you will, the hard science uh, community is not going to accept the uh, relevance of the mystical for uh, in their worldview mm. and um, they, they accept that the mystical exists for others, but they stay away from, as you were just saying, endorsing the fact that there is such a thing as a mystical experience in which you can connect with another realm of reality. Um, so, um, and academia of course is very powerful in setting the, paradigm for how we think about things right Um, which is why you know ireland is great in that regard because it has it hasn't been um so scientificized if you will that sounds fancy but you know it hasn't made everything into a scientific um issue or concept yeah right well it's interesting too because the 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 differentiation like was that a fairy or was that just, you know, a feeling? Was that a fairy or were your eyes blurred? You know, that can happen not just in sort of scientific ways, but can happen in other supernatural or spiritual ways. Like I, I was talking to a guy here that was staying in a house again in, in Cary. Um, but the, you know, he, he said something kept pulling the blankets off of him when he was, uh, and then he went on to tell me, a, you know, ghost story, essentially. I remember right. saying, why go, why did you think that was a ghost and not a fairy? And he just kind of sort of stood back and sort of thought about it for a little bit. Uh-huh. But I, but I think it's, it, it's interesting that like all, <laughs> like, <laughs> like that scientific worldview would say, 
look, there must be another explanation for this. It wasn't fairies. But then if someone would say, yes, you're right, it was a ghost, <laughs> then yeah. that's not, it's right. always got to be the, it's always got to fall within a certain, um, not just a certain framework or, or, or content of a framework, but it also has to be, you know, fit the, fit what's already approved of. And I don't really know. I mean, you do push past that, but I don't really know if it's actually possible really to bring that through this kind of negative mystery center of academia. I don't know if that's actually possible. Um, it's a good question. Although, as you mentioned earlier, there, as of late in the last number of years, you were referring to some other books that have come out that are now, and this goes for anthropology in general, mm -hmm. um, there are books or articles coming out now uh, that um, are much more aligned with at least the middle way, which in a sense is my book also, the middle way. It takes you further, but it doesn't go all the way um, mm -hmm. because, of course, academics and most people in the West just don't go there. They just don't go there. So it's too alien, I think, for many people to actually, if you will, fully legitimize an independent world of fairies or other elemental beings. Um, and yeah. if you can't prove it, okay, I can prove that I spoke to somebody and I can prove um, by my quoting what they said that that is a real fact. It's a fact, right, that they said this. Whether or not it's a fact of the content of what they said, of course, is a matter that's up to the reader, right? I wonder if it's, I wonder if it's something like, like the question, like the, asking a question has sort of a similar, you know, uh, a similar cosmic effect as electricity in a sense. Like by the time you, <clears throat> like you said before, like if you go looking, if you go looking for a fairy, it might not be the best thing to do um, because either what you'll find you won't like, or you probably most likely just won't find anything because you've already decided to kind of align yourself with a certain way of engaging with the world which is this kind of proof version and so maybe right. because academia focuses or, or it works through that it may be the very sort of mental presence of it actually crowds out the possibility of a certain form of reality making itself apparent to people you know right yeah i mean and that and i think i in my earlier research on the Faroe Islands, uh, um, which you alluded to earlier, um, you know, I, I did, there are the Hildefolk, and I did make a map of the Hildefolk according to this old man who knew where they lived. Um, but at the time, I was not open-minded enough, I guess mm -hmm. one could say, or not intuitive enough, or not focused enough, or I didn't have enough emotional upheaval in my life. <laughs> to ena enable me to actually, um, uh, you know, think of them as more real than as than folklore, right? I was quite interested in it, but it, it was it took, as I said earlier, uh, you know, ten or f ten years later for me to be in the space where I could see fairies, which are really counterparts to Hilda folk in the Faroe Islands or elves in Scandinavia. Um, it took me that 10 years of, of something, of experience, 
uh, and and then open-mindedness to come to see fairies as something more than folklore. Do you think that there was a, like, can, could you point to a sort of opening up for yourself? You know, because it's it, it not just meeting somebody, but you're already sort of attuned to be receptive to right, it. Right, right. I mean, right. not, you know, I don't, if, if something did really wound you, because what you're talking about the Faroe Islands, I, I wanted to make the joke. If only someone had really fucked you up before while you were there, then you could have gone into it. <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> no, really, that is kind of a blessing, right? In the <laughs> exactly. But I'm wondering, like, if there was a, you know, if you can find a sort of a place where something was kind of torn you know, or right. whatever, because maybe that's actually a, maybe that's actually a, a method in education that could be sort of used. Like if I sort of c- create a controlled version of this, uh-huh. wound. I mean, I know a lot of people do that obviously in spiritual development, whether it's, you know, taking or, or so-called spiritual development, whether it's taking hallucinogenic drugs or, you know, going into a haunted house or doing, you know, whatever. <laughs> other or doing things. retreats, uh, you know, Buddhist yeah. retreats or whatever. Yeah. Know. But is there maybe, I wonder if there's a way to sort of academize, ac- academize, academicize that, you know, like whatever. Hmm. Well, that would be a good, I wish I could have uh, uh, assigned my students to you know living in the woods uh, for a month <laughs> uh, rather than reading books or, or talking um, as as an educational uh, forum of course that's not quite possible um, but, yeah. um, but is there but I'm, I'm wondering if in that period between Faroe Island yes and I mentioned it I guess in the most specific sense um, I um, I went through a divorce, and I moved where I lived, and uh, I changed a lot of my habits, which of course had previously been associated with my uh, ex-wife. Right. Mm-hmm. So now I I didn't have a partner. I didn't have the same home, uh, and of course, the uh, divorce is not always the most uh, emotionally fulfilling experience. Um, although it's filling. <laughs> um, by that, I mean to say it's filling, but then it, 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 it you know, it provides that open space, I think. Mm. Um, I think it was a combination of that and also that I was in Ireland because oh, I had been, I had been in Ireland uh, prior to uh, separating from my ex-wife and, and still uh, began to have these, what could be called spiritual experiences or, or my intuition intuitive abilities began to open up so it's a combination of factors i think but as i said earlier i think the literature will back me up on this that a lot of the uh, noted speakers uh, not speakers writers or thinkers or spiritualists admit that they were going through tough times when they sought somebody or something out if you will to kind of fill the space that had previously been occupied by habits of uh, long-standing yeah, so interesting because it is, there definitely is like again and again, you'll hear, especially um, people who have been sexually abused as children will end up having spiritual experiences because, in some ways, it separates the, the disassociation like that happens in instances like that can sort of put someone at less in the physical and more in their 
sort of astral or etheric like aspects where they are encountering more readily these worlds. But then again, there's also, as we were talking about before, the people that have the shock of seeing the, right. the spiritual being. And that itself is the shock. That is the encounter that messes them up enough to be able to see it again, which is also interesting. You know, people yeah. that have repeated encounters. But I think, you know, I'm just thinking methodologically, like for academia, I had this um religious studies scholar, Joseph Josephson Storm on the show, and he, he's just great. But he has he has this surprising kind of solution for this in a way where, which aligns with some of the things you're interested in where he's like, look, yes, all the anthropologists were doing um, certain work at this time on understanding religion, spiritual traditions and whatever um, Franz Boas and, you know, all these other people, but, but there was this parallel group that was doing the same thing, except they were actually going and talking to people and taking them seriously. And that was the theosophists. And so if we turn to the theosophists, sort of a pedagogy of not necessarily saying we have to accept theosophy, but if we look at the sort of pedagogical way that theosophy lives in the world, we could teach people differently and do sort of different things with education. And I find that fascinating, you know, that's great. And, um, Maybe it's helpful here for our listeners to differentiate between what could be called two uses of the word theosophy, right? Mm -hmm. The more modern use of the word theosophy is theosophy with a capital T, Mm -hmm. right? Which is a a school of religion, if you will, or a school of of spirituality uh, that one could say started in 1875 in New York City when the Theosophical Society of Madame Blavatsky and Olcott um, became established. Mm -hmm. And since then, there have been centers which still exist uh, all around the world uh, devoted to the study and practice of Theosophy with a capital T. But the word Theosophy with a small t um, has been around in esoteric Christianity, particularly for you know hundreds of years, and really uh, Blavatsky's use of Theosophy with a capital T is just a continuation of that earlier uh, form of primarily Christianity, although also Islam and Judaism to a certain extent, um, in which there were layers of the universe, or one could say elemental beings and experiences that people would seek and have be, within the, between God and humans, not just directly to God, but between God and humans. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And so as you, I'm actually sort of wondering about, and I know I said we'd end here before, but maybe we'll, maybe this will be the last thing I ask you about, that transition into your interest in theosophy, which I guess was probably around for a long time before you wrote a novel about, you know, Madame Vlatsky and theosophy sort of working its way through the world. And there's a lot about Ireland in there as well, which is really interesting. Right. But um, how how you sort of, uh, that became, you know, more and more uh, <laughs> emphasized Brilliant. in your life yeah. and interest. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it was just a natural continuation of my increasing curiosity about the variety of spiritual programs, if you want, if we can call it that, that exist also in the West, because of course the West has been, as we were talking earlier, pretty doctrinaire, I would say pretty institutionalized and not so much recognizing of the individual spiritual or mystical experience as theosophists and others around the world have. 
Um, so I, I just became interested in that. And I've also always been interested in um, Victorian times mm. and, and actually uh, Sherlock Holmes. I'm an avid fan of Sherlock Holmes, um, which also is related to the fairies uh, mm. synchronistically, as you probably know, because uh, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle wrote a, uh, what came to be a very controversial book called Coming of the Fairies in the early 20s, I think, of the 19th century. I'm not sure about the date exactly. Um, and, and, uh, and, he, and he was influenced by uh, theosophy. And so there's a, there's a, I don't know, there's kind of like a, a space someplace that for me links uh, these various uh, modes of, of, of thinking. Mm. And I've, I've also uh, came upon, which you may be familiar with, the whole genre of fairy painting, of Victorian fairy painting, um, which I think is fantastic. And actually, uh, the cover of my book is, uh, you know, a replication of a famous painting uh, uh, early in the 20th century. Yeah, yeah. So the fairy paintings are, you know, yeah, people would sort of overlay. It. No, I'm thinking of the fairy photography where the people would put like little miniature people <laughs> onto landscapes. Right. Yeah, there was a very, very, well, actually it was Conan Doyle's believing in the legitimacy of what was called the Cottingly Fairies photograph right. that led him to write the book. Uh, although uh, many people claimed that those photographs were fake. Although of course, some people believe that they weren't fake. He believed that they were fake. Uh, excuse me. He believed that they were real. Wrote a book that the fairies were coming to inhabit the world, um, and then he lost his his um, popular uh, acclaim because then he got involved uh, in in that kind of stuff rather than uh, his novels. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what a, what a weird thing. I mean, this is where it all kind of. <laughs> comes together right like i mean people thought that madame Vlasky was you know fake and i think into the society for psychical research and investigated her and they're like well she used like a trick drawer and a dresser or something right. like that it was like right. well that doesn't mean you know i mean as anybody who studies any kind of um well shamanism not that i'm calling her a shaman but shamanism or whatever they know that there's this sort of weird blend of the spirituality coming through the sort of trick sign or something like that 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 something that is made to be unreal allows for the real to kind of burst through or puncture you know the the world and so i think that that's you know it's kind of unforgiving to view arthur conan doyle is like he has no credibility because he believed in this one thing but actually perhaps that believing in the false or illusory thing is what allowed the understanding of what's real to come through you know you Uh need something to you need something to create a weird riff, um, you know, in your belief system for, for anything to spill through as we were talking about the rupture of the wound before, but it can also just be a, you know, misapprehension even, you know? Well, in the divinity inquiry, which parallels uh, some things that Blavatsky said herself, as well as some other mystics have said that sometimes they do use trickery Mm -hmm. as a, because the people are not, ready to see the authentic Mm -hmm. and as you just said the trickery or some of the demonstrations of their uh, so-called special powers um, is a method of entry 
But if it were a full method of entry, people would reject it entirely. So sometimes there's a blending of the at the physical level of the real and the unreal, just to get the subject matter out there, if you will. <laughs> right. And also, like, I just, <laughs> probably people who can do or accomplish things are probably just tired of, like, you can't just evoke it all the time. If you take the spiritual reality of what you're doing seriously, you're not going to be constantly, like, proving it to people with, like, right. you know, these, and and I think it's, uh, so I think that that's really yeah, I, I, the demand that it somehow be real so people can believe in it all the time also, you know, um, closes off the ability for people to come to it through their own freedom, you know, and you don't really have anything if you if, if someone's not coming to it really through their own freedom deciding after they have the experience what they want to do with it. Um, yeah, anyway, listen. There's so much more to talk with you about. And um, I'm just, I'm just really appreciative of all the work you've done. Um, it occupies uh, <laughs> a small shelf of <laughs> similar kinds of books. And so it's really crucial and really vital and important. And I just really appreciate it. And I love talking with you. It's, thanks a lot, Dennis. Right. I'd like to make a plug for myself if I could. Yes, please. I've recently completed a screenplay of the book, The Divinity Inquiry, that I wrote. Uh, several people have contacted me uh, recently uh, to say that it would make a good movie. <laughs> and and um, I agree, although probably I agree. <laughs> so uh, uh, I've had some little bit of interest so far, nothing confirmed, and am looking for uh, you know, a production company to uh, purchase the rights to uh, the screenplay of The Divinity Infinity excuse me, the Divinity Inquiry. <laughs> and I appreciate, I appreciate the forum here uh, for you to uh, allow me to even say this and very much appreciated and enjoyed this discussion. And perhaps we can do it again sometime. Yeah, well, when the movie comes out, especially we can do that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. Bye now.